Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. We're not going to waste any time. we got a good guest this week and a lot to cover. Michael Isikoff is the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. He also has a very, very solid podcast called Conspiracy Land. It's in its third season. And I want, Michael, to give you the opportunity to tell my audience briefly what season three is about and why it's so important. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, uh, Major. It's great to be on the show. Um, the, it, we started this uh, podcast, uh, Conspiracy Land, three years ago, and the first two seasons were really designed to debunk the kind of wild conspiracy theories uh, that were floating around social media, gaining traction and sort of penetrating our political dialogue. Uh, the first season was about the uh, conspiracy theory about Seth Rich, the former DNC staffer who Trump allies were accusing, were, were alleging had been assassinated by gunmen hired by Hillary Clinton because he had supposedly leaked uh internal DNC documents to WikiLeaks. It was all nonsense. It was all created. It was pushed by Russian bots and trolls. And um, uh, a diversionary tactic to get uh, people's attention away from what actually happened. Exactly. To the investigation into Trump's own ties to Russia and what the Russians were doing. Last season, the second season, we debunked the conspiracy claim promoted by Trump that Joe Scarborough had murdered a staffer 21 years ago. It was wild nonsense. But Trump, after Trump and Scarborough had a political falling out, Trump went bonkers and started making these allegations. Tweet after Twitter. tweet after tweet for a while. Tweet after tweet, and then uh, it was uh, uh, echoed and, and amplified by QAnon in the Twitterverse. But this season, we did something different and looked at a real conspiracy, and that is the grisly murder of the famed Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi by agents of the Saudi government. And this is... This story obviously got lots of attention at the time because of the absolutely gruesome and brutal nature of Khashoggi's murder inside the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul in October of 2018. But there was so much more to the story of how that happened, how it came about, um, how it was orchestrated by the operatives of the de facto head of state of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and what we were able to do was put, uh, you know, MBS's fingerprints on this 
grisly murder in ways that uh, uh, really um, uh, amplified what was out there already. We discovered a whole bunch of new material. We found the notes based on Saudi interrogations of the assassins that revealed some really startling new details, including the role... um, Sorry about this. <laughs> I assume we could cut this out. Oh no, the dog sound do effects stay there because it's yeah, all okay. about the realism of our time. So yes. Yeah, I think I think. Uh, I, I just need to know the dog's name. I just need to know the dog's name. Yeah, now. Zola. Zola is the dog. Very good. Man. She's very sensitive to um, the uh, operations of the uh, Saudis and particular crimes that they might have committed. But look, here's the thing: the um, uh, there was more. The, the U.S. government has released very limited information about what it knows took place inside that Saudi consulate. And uh, as we lay out in Conspiracy Land, there was so much more to the story. Uh, The uh, Gulfstream jet that flew the Saudi assassins to Istanbul stopped off, had a late night stopover in Cairo, Egypt, where they picked up illicit drugs that were used to uh, injected into Khashoggi's left arm just hours later, killing him within a middle of minutes. Who provided those drugs in Cairo? And you know, one uh, explanation is there's a very close relationship between the Egyptian government of uh, El Sisi and somebody who the Saudis actually helped put in power. Right. That's something we uh, cover in episode four, and um, uh, the Saudis themselves. Themselves. Uh, this has led to some really tough questions members of Congress want answers for. But, you know, it, this has to be looked at as part of a much larger story, and that is the sort of wave of authoritarian repression that's going on around the world and the nexus among these authoritarian regimes. In the lead up to Khashoggi's murder, the Saudis had in had infiltrated Twitter, planted spies inside Twitter to steal the personal details, direct messages, IP addresses of their critics. One of those critics was a guy named Omar uh, Abdulaziz, who was a close collaborator of Jamal Khashoggi in countering MBS's repression. The Saudis penetrated his phone. They used malware to penetrate that phone. They collected hundreds of messages that Khashoggi thinking that he was sending secure messages to a uh, ally actually was being read in real time by the Saudis. And the Saudis used that as a basis to conclude he was a threat to national security and therefore they murdered. So Michael, there are a couple of words that occur to me as I listen to this and as I've dived into this story. And we did an entire episode of The Takeout about this about a year and a half ago. Um, it's a brazen crime carried out with what appears to be impunity and very little blowback, either economically, diplomatically, or in any other way. Am I wrong about any of those three things? No, you're absolutely right. And the, um, the, the impunity begins under Donald Trump's presidency. And, you know, we will deal with that in episode eight, the final uh, episode where we document the ways that the um, Trump White House basically protected um, MBS. Uh, you know, Trump famously told Bob Woodward, I saved his ass, mm-hmm. uh, referring to MBS. But there's a lot 
to how they did it. Um, we have an interview, uh, a number of interviews with John Bolton, who sheds a great deal of light saying he didn't even ask MBS about who committed the murder because he hadn't gotten the sanction from the president to confront the crown prince about this. The, uh, the, the, the Trump administration had spent, um, you know, two years cultivating the Saudis as their principal ally in the Mideast. They saw MBS as a change agent. They saw MBS as a counter to Iranian, uh, to, to the uh, Iranians. Um, and uh, so they were doing everything they could, working through Jared Kushner, who was exchanging hundreds of WhatsApp messages with MBS himself uh, to prop up MB MBS, protect him. And that's what they did after this murder. But it doesn't end there. Uh, President Biden, during the campaign, said he was going to make the Saudis a pariah as a result of the Khashoggi murder. And although they did release this very skimpy report, which concludes from the US intelligence community, which concludes that MBS had authorized the operation that killed Khashoggi, they imposed no sanctions against him. They, uh, uh, no blacklisting, no, uh, nothing that would make him uh, a pariah in any way. And, Here's one of the things that got very little attention just days before, days before Biden, uh, the Biden administration released that report, essentially accusing MBS of murder. Lloyd Austin, Biden's secretary of yep. defense, calls MBS, who's his who's the defense minister of Saudi Arabia, to talk about the strategic partnership between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Right. In other words, the murder of a U.S.-based journalist is less than a minor irritant in the relationship between the United States and the Saudi Arabian government, the kingdom, the family. And that is true for a Trump administration. It appears to be true for a Biden administration. More with our special guest, Michael Isikoff. This is The Takeout. Stay tuned for segment two and listening to segment two in just a second. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Ladies and gentlemen, one theme of this show uh, today, this episode of The Takeout, is old dogs, new tricks. I'm an old dog in journalism, so is Michael. I say that with affection and reverence, in my case for sure, because it's about me and about Michael also. We've known each other for many, many years. He's been in the much harder, bitten, investigative side of journalism. I've been in the daily journalism, but we've been in Washington a long time. And we are both embracing this new way of talking to listeners and telling stories, which is the podcast universe. The Takeout is now in its fifth year. My other podcast, The Debrief, had two different runs during the pandemic. We're rebooting it for the fall. More details on that to come. But Michael, just briefly, what is it about this way to, sto to tell stories that you find so useful 
and compelling for your listeners and those who follow you? Well, it, it is it is a compelling experience uh, to listen to a well-produced podcast. It, it, they're essentially audio documentaries, and there's something about listening, um, perhaps undistracted by you know video images or photographic images, where you're just listening to what people say and you 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 pick up things you experience it in a different way and in some ways a much more powerful way um you know i can't tell you how many people who have listened to conspiracy land uh our new season in particular and say wow you know i thought i'd read everything about the khashoggi murder uh but when i hear people like agnes calamard the French lawyer who was the United Nations special rapporteur to extrajudicial killings, who did the most authoritative public investigation into um, the murder. Uh, It is is chilling, um, as she describes what happened inside that consulate. She's one of the few people that was able to listen to the tapes made by the Turks, by Turkish intelligence. So she heard the references before Khashoggi ever walked into that consulate to him as a sacrificial uh, uh, animal. She heard the Saudis assassins talking about how they were going to carve up his body and put it into uh, black plastic bags. And then she heard it happen. She heard the tapes of them happen and she describes it in a really visceral way that I think will hit home for listeners. Uh, and that's all in the, in the very first episode. of. Uh, it absolutely is. And I found that there's an intimacy with this kind of format. People set aside time and they put themselves into this world and the audio experience is kind of transporting for them. And they're better listeners, they're more engaged, they've made an intentional allocation of time and brain space. And when you have that with your audience, you've got a relationship. And can I add just one other uh, aspect of this, uh, which is, you know, the title of this series is The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Mm -hmm. Khashoggi. And, you know, one of the things that I think was not fully appreciated by people who followed the story in the past is just what a remarkable life Jamal and complicated to with capital C complicated yes he was a man of I mean I I say in the podcast this is a guy who could have been a character out of a novel Mm -hmm. I mean he had so many different lives in uh and was seen in so many different ways in episode three we start we talk about his relationship with osama bin laden which was real and went on for years he was osama bin laden's first champion as a young saudi journalist he he was invited by bin laden to go to afghanistan and cover the mujahideen war against the this, Soviet free, this freedom fighter fighting for islam yes Right. And they, Bin Laden and, and Khashoggi formed a bond in the caves of Afghanistan uh, that had a huge impression on Khashoggi. Uh, he came back from Afghanistan and extolled the virtues of Bin Laden uh, in, his, in his stories, talk about the courageous Mujahideen war against the Soviet infidels. And, um, and then 
Years later, he's assigned, he's, he's deputized to go and try to convince bin Laden to give up his terrorist ways and return to the fold in Saudi Arabia. And it's, we have never heard before tapes of Khashoggi describing his dealings with bin Laden over the years, and they really are quite fascinating. And in some of the uh, stories anyone could read about Jamal Khashoggi, they'll see the word mouthpiece for the Saudi government. That's shorthand. What does it mean, and what did it mean to him? Well, it meant a lot, and it and it, Is really it true? hung over him for absolutely after um, uh, after his bin Laden extolling days, and after as he rose in the ranks of Saudi journalism, um, he became something of a target because he was, you know, <laughs> this is a guy I said of, of, of many contradictions. Uh, even though he was in his early days an Islamist, he was also a journalist who liked to sort of, you know, stir the pot and uh, and, and poke his country's rulers up to a point. This got him in, uh, in, in, in bad standing with one of the powerful Saudi princes, Prince Nayef, who was then the interior minister. And then Khashoggi is rescued by yet another Saudi prince, Turkey bin Faisal, who had been the chief of Saudi intelligence and then is assigned to be the Saudi ambassador in London. London and he hires Khashoggi as his media advisor, as his spin doctor. And, um, uh, and this, you know, basically cements Khashoggi's image as somebody who was not just close to the regime, but was a part of the Saudi regime. Uh, and as you'll hear in the next episode out tomorrow, uh, out uh, Thursday, uh, episode four, he went on secret missions uh, to collect intelligence uh, for the Saudis about Islamist networks in Europe that he was familiar with. So it's, it's really a, a, a sort of a fascinating evolution that Khashoggi went through from Islamist supporter of bin Laden to spokesman and, you know, spin doctor for the Saudi government to, and this you'll also hear in the next episode, an apostle of freedom and democracy, who's energized by the Arab Spring and then devastated by the uh, crackdown on the Arab Spring protests, which came very much from his own government, the Saudi government. We're recording this, ladies and gentlemen, on June 23rd. So this morning, there is a headline in the New York Times. I want to run it by Michael. Saudi operatives who killed Jamal Khashoggi received paramilitary training in U.S., with State Department approved contractor. Is that a big story, Michael? Yes. Did uh, it is something we are going to deal with in the podcast. It's, uh, uh, it's in the last episode, episode eight, um, uh, unfortunately. New York Times trying to steal a bit of your thunder. Is that what's going on here, Michael? New York Times did steal a bit of our thunder, but, um, uh, you know, so be it. That's what, that's what happens when you roll these things out over several weeks. Uh, Some of what you have uh, gets uh, preempted, but yeah, it just shows how intertwined uh, the U S government and the Saudis uh, are and have been. I mean, one of the, one of the consistent tier one is the private here. contractor, is it not? Yes, 
Yes, and it was um, uh, it was part of a New York hedge fund, Cerberus, um, whose CEO was actually named by Trump to be the chairman of his uh, intelligence advisory board. Uh, which made things a little awkward when one of um, uh, the uh, Cerberus executives deputies, Lou Bremer, was nominated to be on the uh, assistant secretary for special ops in the Pentagon. And you'll hear uh, what took place when he went for his confirmation hearing. But there were Got questions a dicey. about the role, yes, in the um, uh in the in, in training the operatives. Now we should say there's no indication that they were trained you know, on how to do this. They say they were trained yeah, in defensive they, they security trained, basic right. they skills. Were not, they were not trained about how to carve up a journalist's no. body. So but it does show this this very close relationship between uh, the Saudi military and intelligence uh, infrastructure and the United States. And what I was going to say- Michael, hold consistent- that thought because I got to jump to break, but uh, you're right in mid-sentence, okay. so I know you're revved up. So hold that thought. We'll get back to you on that thought and many others okay. on the Jamal Khashoggi murder. I'm Major Garrett. Michael Isikoff is our special guest. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just one minute. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Michael Isikoff is his name, title chief investigative correspondent, Yahoo News. He also has a very, very good podcast called Conspiracy Land. You were in mid-thought, mid-rev-up. Go ahead, Michael Isikoff. Okay, one of the consistent themes of this saga is the arms for oil bargain that was first, you know, hatched aboard the USS Quincy, a naval destroyer in the Suez Canal uh, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt visited at the end of World War II in the closing weeks, uh, months of World War II, uh, when he met with King Ibn Saud, the founding monarch of Saudi Arabia. And basically, the arrangement from the get-go was the Saudis would provide the American uh, the Americans with oil mm-hmm. and the U.S. oil companies would help extract it. And in return, we would provide security and weapons to uh, the Saudi kingdom. And that's a core relationship that continued for you know more than 70 years, nurtured, by the way, uh, famously by a guy named Adnan Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi's cousin, a billionaire arms dealer and you know international playboy in the 80s who you know ultimately got swept up in the Iran Contra scandal, um, but um, played a big role in he was a middleman who played a big role in brokering arms deals between American defense contractors and the Saudi government with uh, kickbacks and bribes going to Saudi uh, uh, Saudi royalty for these arms deals. And this continues right up to that just iconic moment in, um, uh, uh, in world affairs in, in, in 2018, when MBS comes to the yep. White House and is greeted by President Trump. I don't know. You may have been there that day, Major. I, <laughs> I was. And Trump Trump is holding up poster boards yep. of all the giant weapons deals that the Saudis have agreed to make to, pay, to buy American weapons from 
Saudi, uh, from American defense contractors. And Trump is extolling these about what a great thing the Saudis are doing by buying Bradley Tate. Uh, tanks and frigates and other giant weapons deals. And what's so sort of, you know, really uh, unsettling is you watch that and then you see Trump's reaction after the Khashoggi murder. And what explanation does he give for not punishing the Saudis for killing a columnist for an American newspaper, he talks about all the weapons, all the weapons. they are buying from the United States. Um, Bob Corker, who was the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman at the time and is interviewed in the podcast, this will be in episode eight, the, the, the last episode, says for him, this was the low mo a low moment for the United States in moral standing around the world to dismiss the murder of a U.S.-based journalist because of the weapons the, the government that did it uh, were buying from the Right, United and I States. write in my book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, Michael, that I covered many American presidents traveling overseas who talked about arms sales to various countries, some of them led by authoritarian leaders, but always as sort of at the margins and with a little bit of timidity bordering on embarrassment because they understood the naked transactional nature of these arms sales and what came with it. Donald Trump was completely different. He not only embraced it, he made a ceremony out of it. When we, when we were in Riyadh with President Trump on his very first foreign trip in Riyadh, not only did he talk about it, there was a carpeted ceremony in which American defense contractors signed deals. They'd already signed them, of course, but there's like a ceremonial signature. They would walk up, sign the document and get applause from everyone in the room, including Trump. This was, this was elevating the naked transactional component of national security, weapons trading, and alliances in a way that no previous president had ever done, in my experience. And, and, it, and it sends a signal, to Bob Corker's point of view and many others, it sends a signal that basically this is all I care about. And then when push came to shove, it actually was true. It's all that Donald Trump as president cared about. Uh, it, it, it was the centerpiece of his you know, Mideast strategy. It was certainly of, his, of the alliance that he formed with the Saudis. It was all around this arms for oil bargain, which, as I say, goes back many years, many decades. Other presidents have embraced it but not in uh, not in the way that Trump did. Trump made it front and center and that sent a pretty uh, strong message to the Saudis that that's what the American government cares right. about. It's not going to worry about our harsh crackdowns on dissidents, our mass execution of political prisoners, our abductions around the world, our murder of a American-based journal. And I know if Donald Trump were standing right here, he would say, come on, guys, stop being babies. Stop being naive. Every American president made the same calculation I did. I just said it. I just was completely blatant about it. And if we didn't sell the arms, some other competitor of ours would have. It doesn't mean the Saudis wouldn't have been armed. They just would have sent the money someplace else. And American jobs wouldn't have been created. So stop being a baby about it. I was just as aggressive and obvious about it as I wanted to be, because that's who I am. I know that's what he would say. And there's some component part of that that is true. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, um, you know, but the point I think that 
Corker makes and, and, and I was trying to make there is, but this has consequences because it does send a message. Because the Trump uh, approach was, it has no downside and it does have a downside. Right. It does. It does have a downside. You know, uh, the other sort of absolutely sort of fascinating part of this is the, the, the charm offensives of MBS and how Mm -hmm. he cold and, 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 connived to warm his way into the hearts of American government officials, of American corporate leaders, and of uh, opinion. uh, They write a lot of checks, don't they, Michael? Yes. Well, the corporations do, you know, there's this thing called Davos in the desert, which we will deal with in episode seven, where all the titans of American industry and uh, uh, finance and Hollywood flock to uh, MBS's big grand extravaganza uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia in, in sort of gulling them into investing in Saudi uh, uh, ventures sort of across the board. Ari Emanuel, right. the super Hollywood agent is there signing a deal with the Saudis uh, for Hollywood. And at the same time, let's not forget that there were people in the American government in both in both the Obama and the Trump administration who embraced MBS as a change agent. One of the things you'll hear in the later episode is uh, really uh, interesting interviews with uh, Joseph Westphal, who was the uh, Obama's ambassador to uh, uh, Riyadh, who talks about how he would go and visit with MBS and they would laugh and joke around and how impressed he was with MBS that he was going to revolutionize his country. Uh, in uh, uh, June of 2016, MBS comes to, the, to Washington. He's not even crown prince at that time. He's the defense minister. And he gets invited to the home of John Kerry, the secretary of state. He comes in, sits down at Kerry's grand piano and starts playing the Moonlight Sonata by Ludwig von Beethoven. And Kerry, you'll hear in episode uh, five, talks about how impressed he was that uh, yep. MBS was this cultured reformer. And this is the guy who was at the same time harshly cracking cracking down on uh, critics, uh, 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 harshly cracking down on any and all political dissent, and that leads ultimately to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Sad but true fact about American diplomacy, there are lots of people whose careers uh, are part of the scattered remains of American diplomacy who believed in the prospect, the promise of revolutionary authoritarian reformers who never were. This is not the first episode of it. It will not be the last. More on that and the Jamal Khashoggi killing with Michael Isakoff. I'm Major Garrett. This is the Takeout Segment 4 in just one second. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Continuing our conversation with Michael Isikoff, the... uh, podcast is called Conspiracy Land. He is 
uh, midway through an eight-episode treatment of the Jamal Khashoggi murder. And I don't want to hit this too hard, Michael, but I don't want to gloss over it either. This was a brutal, brutal crime of the kind that would shock even those who are experienced in brutal crimes carried out covertly. True? Uh, absolutely. It's, it, I, you know, I think it's the most grisly murder that I can think of in modern times. You know, all the more shocking that it's carried out by operatives of a foreign government that is a U.S. ally, that was and is a U.S. ally. So why was he at the Turkish consulate in Istanbul? Uh, fascinating story in its own right. I mean, he was there to pick up the um, uh, his divorce records from Saudi Arabia, proving that he was divorced from his wife in uh, Saudi Arabia. So he can marry this young Turkish graduate student who was then his fiance, Hatice Cengiz. Um, and, but there's a complication uh, in yes, that even, yeah. is there not? Yes, there is. Ep- we said earlier, <laughs> capital C complicated. Yeah. Stay tuned, folks. Yes. Michael, go ahead. Op- uh, episode seven is called A Tale of Two Women. And uh, just months before Khashoggi's murder, uh, with his Turkish fiance waiting outside that consulate for him to emerge while he was being brutally murdered by the Saudis, Khashoggi had, in an Islamic ceremony, married another woman, a flight attendant for Emirates Airline, an Egyptian woman. He had known her for years. Uh, they, uh, a imam performed the ceremony in June of 2018. Um, uh, of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and this uh, other woman, Hanan al-Atir is her name. And you will hear a full interview of her. And, you know, uh, Khashoggi's friends have tried to dismiss the relationship with Hanan, suggesting it was short-lived, it didn't really amount to much, you know, he was not. But, you know, Hanan tells a very compelling story. She's got the text messages that she and Jamal exchanged, which she shared with me, and you'll hear some of them in the podcast. She's got the photographs of the two of them together. She's got the receipts of the jewelry uh, that um, uh, Jamal had bought for her. Uh, But what's yeah, so look, to, to, is, to use an Americanism, it wasn't a practice marriage, now was it, <laughs> no, Michael? No, it wasn't. Uh, but there's there's an important part to this as well. And, and this is not something that I think uh, has been reported before, but you'll hear about it in episode seven. Uh, after she begins her relationship with Khashoggi in the spring of 2018, um, she lives in, uh, uh, in, in the Emirates. She's pulled over by Emirati security forces, detained for 10 days, and grilled about her relationship with Khashoggi. So mm-hmm. although Khashoggi had kept his relationship with Hanan secret from most of his friends, the Emiratis knew about it. And the, and the Emiratis, of course, are, you know, like that with the Saudis. They are, you know, which meant the Saudis knew about it. And it's just one indication of the extent of the digital snooping that is that was going on. By and constant surveillance, and right. Constant yes. surveillance of so, any and Chris- all who might pose any kind of threat to them. And, you know, that's a big part of the story and a central theme of the story. 
On that fateful day, October 2018, Jamal Khashoggi enters the consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. Then what happens? Um, before he enters, he was there. Uh, he was supposed to show up at 1 o'clock. He showed up at 1.13. In the minutes before, I referenced uh, earlier, um, the uh, Turkish audio tapes, but Agnes Calamard, the UN special rapporteur, recounts these you know, truly chilling conversations about how they were going to carve up his body, uh, and um, uh, and um, that he was a sacrificial animal. Which, by the way, in and of itself, gives the lie to the Saudi claim that uh, this was an accident. That that his killing was an accident. It was a scuffle that got out of control right. and an accidental death. Yeah. After initially denying that. Uh, Khashoggi had even been killed at all, saying he left the consulate and, you know, uh, we have no idea what happened to him. Uh, when that when that lie was ex exposed, their sort of fallback was there had been a fistfight in the embassy, mm -hmm. in the consulate, and that got out of control. Um, clearly not true. Clearly they were intending to kill him. By the way, that's why they stopped off in Cairo the night before to pick up this lethal dose of narcotics that they can use to effectively poison Khashoggi. But after they do so, he is um, smothered, uh, suffocated, just to make sure of his death. And then the uh, carving up of the body takes place with a bone saw which was brought on the plane from Riyadh, another sign that this was an intentional state-sponsored assassination from the get-go. And then, just if I can say one more beat about the cover-up that took place, you, we all know about the Saudi uh, uh, heavy man, the sort of supposed look-alike, who puts on Khashoggi's clothes and glasses and walks out of the consulate to present to show evidence that he had left the consulate. Uh, he then goes, according to the notes we found, uh, to the famous Blue Mosque in Sultan Ahmed Square, change, goes into a toilet, changes clothes, takes Khashoggi's clothes, dumps them in dumpsters in uh, outside Sultan Ahmed Square. And at the same time, all the uh, hard drives from the security cameras are removed by one of the assassins, smashed into bits and then dumped in garbage bins throughout Istanbul, part of the, a big part of the cover-up that took place. One minute to go, Michael. Uh, why was it necessary to dismember the body and what became of it? Well, uh, there's, there can be no autopsy, of course, if you dismember the body. Nobody Got can it. figure out that, you know, what killed him. Uh, and as for what happened to it, some of those uh, body parts were burned in a tandoor oven at the home of the Saudi consul general. But as we will, as you'll hear in episode eight, some of other body parts, including perhaps his head, was brought back uh, on the plane uh, from Istanbul to Riyadh. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've been listening for all four segments, you may have reached a conclusion I have, which is if this were written as a novel, uh, a publisher or two might reject it as too fanciful, as too extraordinary, as too out of bounds, but it actually happened. This is a classic case where facts are stranger or more bizarre, more brutal, more criminal than actual fiction. Michael Isikoff explains it in not only gruesome but painstaking detail in his podcast, Conspiracy Land. 
He is the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. He's been our special guest. Michael, it's great to have you. For our radio audience, we have to say farewell. For those on CBSN and the podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Michael Isikoff is our special guest, chief investigative correspondent, Yahoo News, also the creator of Conspiracyland podcast. Midway through season three, a deep dive and enormously important details, new reporting, new revelations about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, just a couple of basics on this, Michael. How long did it take you to put this together? <laughs> that is the most awkward question you could ask. I'm sure. Uh, because I started this well over a year ago, uh, had all planned uh, a big trip to Istanbul in March of 2020 to do. Mm, and something happened, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, something happened that got in the way. This COVID I think I read about it in the thing. papers maybe once or twice. Yes, <laughs> the COVID thing, <laughs> which, uh, you know, at first I was saying, okay, I'll just wait this out for. <laughs> yeah, we'll make it to what we'll go in May. We'll go in May, <laughs> then we'll go in the summer. Uh, yeah, I was really psyched because I love Istanbul. It's really who doesn't one of the great cities in the world, uh, and so that really uh, set this back, unfortunately. But at the same time, I was doing you know uh, Zoom interviews with a lot of the key principals, and I was able to get. And once it became clear that I wasn't going to make that trip to Istanbul, you know, we figured out other ways. But also, we got some great material from Istanbul. Uh, regardless, uh, you know, I mentioned in the first segment. I think we have the notes from this secret. Saudi trial that was uh, took place in 2019, uh, and what happened is this was a you know the, the the trial was a sham as as trials go you know no uh, no press allowed closed door no human rights monitors uh, no public record of what took place but Turkish embassy pretty one way rules of evidence I'm guessing yes uh, and and clearly the whole purpose of the trial was to uh, ensure and deflect any responsibility from MBS and his right hand man Saud Al Qatani who looms large in this story but Turkish embassy observers were uh, permitted to um, sit in on the trial they took notes of what the prosecutor said based on the confessions during interrogations by some of the assassins and it revealed and the, and they, those notes were then entered into the court record in Istanbul there's a separate trial in absentia of Khashoggi's killers. I had those notes translated, and that's what provided the first information about the Cairo stopover, that one of the uh, assassins, a guy named Mutreb, who had worked with Khashoggi years earlier, had actually been the on-the-scene commander who makes the decision, according to these notes, that Khashoggi cannot be brought back. He will be killed. Clearly, that was made before they got to Istanbul. And Saud al-Qahtani, MBS's right-hand man, meets with the Tiger team of assassins before they leave for Istanbul. How big is your team? 
who puts this together with you? Huh. Well, I did it. Uh, I, I had a, um, uh, a researcher reporter, Suzanne Smalley, uh, who worked for most of it. And then we have a production team, long story short, that just did a phenomenal job. And the, the, um, the editing, the music, the mixing, I think I couldn't be happier with uh, what a great job they did. And I think that's what makes this such a compelling experience to listen to. Another Americanism, it takes a village to put a podcast together. Yes, does it, it, not, do- yes it does. <laughs> but it's a lot of work. I got to tell you. It's a ton of work. No doubt. No doubt. Podcasts are a lot of work, a lot of writing, rewriting, editing. And, and then, of course, the, um, you know, the tracking, which you are right. much more expert at than I am. <laughs> yes, but you and I both grew up in print journalism. I was a late arrival at broadcast television and broadcasting itself. It's a late in life adaptation. I want to ask you, what did you learn about your own writing process, writing for a podcast, as opposed to many of the other forms of writing? You were a magazine writer at Newsweek for many years, investigative reporter. What did you learn? Uh, well, it's it's a different experience writing. It's it's a different kind of writing. You know, I had an experience. You have intentional cliffhangers, and you have sort of scripting time marks and things where you have to write it like a like a movie or exactly. a short story. Exactly. It's it's a little bit like a movie script um, because you got to keep the listener hanging. And there's so many twists and turns in this story that it really wasn't hard to find those mm-hmm. pivot points and right. the, uh, the the sort of you know clues to what's going to happen. Uh, next. Um, But I got to say, you know, putting this all together and spending all the time I did, it was like writing a book. I mean, I've written and co-written a a, a number of books. Bestsellers. Yeah. And, uh, and this one was just as intense an experience and, you know, the amount of research I did and the amount of fact checking I did, you know, to make it all work was very similar to the process of writing a book. Right. Uh, it's a million miles away still, but it's as close as any male will get to having a baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> having written four books and produced many podcasts, I'll just say yeah. that. I'll leave. I won't. I won't ask Michael to agree or disagree. No, I'll just I'm own not, it myself. I'm not gonna. You know, <laughs> on the off chance my wife listens to this, I'm not going to uh, comment. Right. So we have three questions, Michael. We ask all of our guests, and our audience yes. loves the answer. So take these in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life? Uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? And if you're really going to dig on some. Music and really, really enjoy it. What kind of artist or genre are you most likely to listen? Oh to? God! All right, listen. I'm going to date myself. Um, uh, you know, I uh, grew up uh, in the '60s and '70s, so you know, the music of that era is still what I'll listen to when I'm British Invasion. Yeah, uh, British Invasion, but also American. Uh, uh, country rock, folk rock. I was, you know, I was a huge fan of the band. Robbie yes. Robertson and the band. Yep. And, you know, that's still my sort of leave on helm. Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, the Brown album is, you know, a work of artistry that uh, has unequaled in my view. Um, I've been trying desperately to get Robbie Robertson on my po- other podcast, Skullduggery, because I want to ask him about cancel culture. Could you make, could you make could you the make- night they drove old Dixie down now? Right. Could that, no? be, could that be done? Anyway. Right. Uh, so Robbie, if you're listening, please, I'd love to have you. And then uh, after you do Michael's show, do mine. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, the greatest single recorded live performance, I believe, is the last oh, waltz of their last show in San Francisco. Made. Best yes. rock movie ever. Unquestionably. Okay. Uh, you know, look, uh, most influential book, God, um, you know, I'm going to be sort of obvious here. All the president's men. I was, <laughs> you know, uh, 
Uh, I was going to college during Watergate. I remember we used to act out the, um, you know, the, when the tapes got released, we would act them out in the dorm room. Somebody would play Haldeman, somebody would play Ehrlichman, somebody would play Nixon. We would do it. Uh, so that inspired me. And, uh, you know, movies, you know, all the President's Men movie is great, but I love all journalism movies. I just I just uh, uh, taped uh, His Girl Friday the other day. It was on. Great, and great, great what movie. A great movie. What a great movie about journalism. And, 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 you know, its lessons are still. And the the way we do our business hasn't changed a whole lot. <laughs> if I could be half the journalist that Rosalind Russell was in that movie, I'd, I, my career would be all set. Yeah. It's a, fun, it's a the phenomenal editor, movie. Like Cary Grant. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. exactly. Michael Isikoff, uh, deep and heavy subject. I know we ended it on a lighter note, but uh, mad respect for the work the podcast, and the deep dive into an important story that reveals a lot about relationships between the United States and Saudi government and the death, the brutal murder of an innocent journalist. Thanks so very much. It's been my pleasure to spend the time with you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Great to be with you. That's it, folks. See you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce Season 4 of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Mo Rocca on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.